Hello everyone and welcome to the iSphere Season 2 Episode 13 after possibly the longest hiatus we could have done. I think it was about 3-4 months, Joy? It was, but in our defence it was 3-4 months from hell, so that's that's <laughs> why we're coming back now. We're fine, we're, do, we're doing better. Yeah, so well, thank, you for being patient. We've, thank we've, you for being patient. We've recovered the best that we could. Um, and we're, we're going to just jump right in because Joyce sucker punched me with more book talk drama. <laughs> what happened in the author world this week or yesterday? Uh, if you want to talk about my week, my week has been awful with publishing stuff because it's been nothing but you, all these new changes happening are just going to make self-publishing worse for a lot of people. But anyway... This morning I woke up to everyone saying to me, have you seen what Jodie Pico said on TikTok? And I was like, I have intentionally avoided anything to do with Jodie Pico for most of my, you know, editing life. And Who's she? I, I went, she's, a, she's a very big author. She's a very, very okay. big author. She is a huge jugg juggernaut of women's fiction and some other stuff as well. She's kind of in those... Um, the genres where it's towing the line between romance, women's fiction, and general literature, but she is a big, huge juggernaut of the industry. Um, and she took to TikTok yesterday to say that um, it was this kind of like sweetly phrased, like, I'm here to tell you about self-publishing. And it was like, what do, you, what do I think of self-publishing? Don't do it. Don't take the easy way out to becoming an author. So I'm 30 Ooh. seconds into this video and I've already, like, <laughs> blood pressure's up. Um, seeing red. <laughs> seeing red. And I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. I will see I will see what, what the next couple of sentences are. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But it was basically it amounts to people who self-publish don't want to put the work in to finding an, you know, an agent and a publisher and being vetted properly and getting their work to a higher standard. And like, it was the whole idea that anyone who self-publishes isn't serious about their writing, which is ludicrous because self-pub is currently, you know, shoring up a huge chunk of the industry for a lot of diversity yeah. um, that people want. But, um, I mean, her, the way her, that, yeah. the way that she kind of phrased that there, it's quite, like, how, just because you don't go the route of, like, traditional publishing doesn't mean that you don't have your work, like, edited. I mean, you use an editor. Like, uh, yeah, I, I, I have two editors plus whoever else they have on staff at the time. Um, it was kind of implied that, well, people that self-publish, they don't want to be criticised, so they just publish their work straight away. They don't want to go through the whole system. Every single self-pub and indie author that I know works all of the jobs that normally would be done by a publisher so you're doing the job of about 10 people you know you're paying for your edits you're paying for formatting you're paying for book covers you're paying for audio by yourself yeah. um, and audio and i've talked about this before on tumblr the average cost of audiobook production is anywhere from seven grand to ten grand um unless you do it yourself um, and a lot of the time you can't because Audible and a lot of other places, they scan for background noise. And if you don't have perfect silence, they reject your files. So you typically do have to hire out a professional. Um, yeah. So Miss Pico's whole thing was, you know, these people are taking the easy way out. They're just uploading their stuff and that's them. Uh, that's not how it that's works. And it is extremely disrespectful to imply that we're not doing the work. 
um, has, has has she ever self-published? No, she has only ever been. Um, so shut the fuck up! Then. It's like this stuff annoys me. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, this it, is this thing that I have no experience with and I've never done. No, that's the easy route. Okay. It gets worse. So oh, her fuck. whole reason for why you should put the effort in was because traditional publishing houses take care of their authors. I had to pause the video. Oh dear. And take a moment because the idea that trad pub houses look after their authors is such a 1% mindset. And it shows me, you know, she was first published 30 years ago. So her experience is from 30 years ago and when things were completely yeah, different. Being a darling of industry the whole way through that, I kind of yeah. imagine as well. Yeah. So. And it's all, as Tundra is pointing out, trad pub looks after their profits. Yeah. So they will look after you if you are profitable. But you still have a lot of New York Times bestselling authors at the moment that can't afford to make writing their full-time job because the way publishing houses treat them, they're not get, they're not even getting their full advances anymore. Their advances are being broke up into quarters. Yeah. Um so it's it's the idea that, you know, it's worth it to persevere and to, you know, go through the reject you know, it was almost like the rejection process was like you have to go through that to test yourself. It's kinda like paying your dues a little bit. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah. you've you've got to it's, it's like the people that want to like not have student debt cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's given that kind of vibe. It's like, well, I um, I had to struggle and toil and. But uh, yeah, and because yeah. she opened it with, I was rejected a hundred times. It's just like looking at so, yeah your work. You probably should have been rejected more, Jody. I'm just um, <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm really not a fan. I'm sorry to anyone that is, but it's the attitude of it was very condescending. It was very, these people don't work hard, but then at the same time, it was, this is the easy way to get published. And it's like, is it, or is it the accessible way to get published? Because here's the thing, Jody has recently been very popular in certain you know circles online in like BookTok and Instabook and all, all these things. And it's because her work is being censored and banned in certain schools for sensitive material. It's specifically her novel, 19 Minutes, which is about a um a school shooting that takes place and it's it's very um graphic and violent and you have this kind of whole thing where um the the student who shoots up the school is because he's bullied and rejected by this main character girl that loves like you know he loves her she doesn't love him okay. and then at the end of the book she is because of how she treated him she is also like convicted of like a lesser manslaughter charge because her actions she was so mean yeah oh god that's so that seems like an incels fantasy actually it does it does um it would not be something that i would recommend anyone to read i it's not my cup of tea but i also don't agree that it should be censored Mm. um and her work was being censored and she became kind of like a little advocate for you know, the book bans are bad because one of the reasons her books were banned were, you know, there's LGBT characters, there's sex, you know, all of the things that are currently happening where a lot of, you know, LGBT authors and, you know, books are being taken out of of schools, out of libraries. And that is a very valid concern, but the censorship that is happening. But here's the thing with Jodie's take on her censorship ends with it's bad when it happens to her. Basically, it's bad when it happens to books that have been vetted by publishers because her idea of like, well, the people that, you know, 
she, you know, she, she in some of her videos she used the term that you know the the books are being like gate like gatekept from like people because of this blah blah blah. I don't think she fully understands the extent of gatekeeping within publishing because the book bans don't originate with the books that have been published that are just being taken off shelves. It starts with publishing houses refusing to tell diverse stories. It starts with publishing wanting only a certain amount of books to go out that they deem to be acceptable. It starts with, you know, they want, you know, white protagonists with occasional, the, the, the you know, the token diversity character that they will throw out to say, oh, look, we're not racist. See, we have one book this year that has a, a person of colour on the cover. Um, and it was her idea that publishing will take care of you. When most of us who are self-pub or indie pub um, are rejected by the industry for not being heteronormative, not being able-bodied, not being, you know, white, you know, it's it's a really bad take for her to be like, well, if you're being rejected, it's for a good reason. When the industry is so blatantly racist, ableist, fatphobic, you know, there's um, any number of reasons why an author has been rejected and it has nothing to do with the quality of their work. Yeah, and that I, you know, it fully it got my back up so completely because it was, you know, if you're good and you work hard, you'll get there eventually, and you'll get what you're owed. I, I've told this story a million times. The former publishing house that I worked for, and I can't name them because of an NDA, but the they're a fairly decent sized, well known publishing house. They offered me a rather pithy amount of money for hunger pangs. And they wanted me to change, you know, all of it. And it was, well, you know, if you want to be taken seriously in the industry, you can't have your disabled main character be sexy. You can't have them be a dominant character. His, you know, Nathan has too many disabilities. Vlad should be darker and broody. And, you know, it was basically just, they wanted the disability removed and they wanted the, the LGBT elements to be toned down. They wanted the politics to be toned down and they wanted the polyamory, which is intentional to be turned into a love triangle to appeal to mainstream audiences. And I was like, cool, I'm not trying to appeal to heterosexual straight white couples. I am attempting to appeal to my community. And they were like, but that's not how, you're never going to succeed with that. It's, you need to think of mainstream appeal. It is weird was, how, I mean, we've mentioned this before in like kind of previous episodes when like that's traditional publishers funneling everything through the same kind of like crap filter. So everything yeah. becomes the same. Yeah. Like, how many samey books are you going to get by like stripping it? I mean, like, yeah, all the things you mentioned there is what makes hunger pangs hunger pangs. There's no like, you can't, you it's can't know. It's a queer disabled polyamorous romance story. That is what that is, and I did that because that is the community that I'm in. That and I want stories that aren't ableist, that aren't, you know. I don't want the same. I want to do something different. And yeah. I was told basically it will never get anywhere. And it's still, I, there's a really, really petty part of me that when I got my figures in for my pre-sales, I kind of wanted to have, instead of just having international best-selling author, I kind of wanted to have outsold the New York Times bestseller on it <laughs> because they don't let indies in or self-pubs into all of the, the, the bestseller lists. But a part of me was going, oh, you need to sell 6,000 copies to get onto the, to be considered for the New York Times bestseller list. And I remember looking at it and going, yeah, I did better than that. Yeah. <laughs> I did better than that. And I did it because 
not because of mainstream appeal, but because people were like, holy shit, there's finally a story that I would read because it talks to me. And, and sorry, 6,000 yeah. copies you said there for New York bestseller. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. interesting. I didn't see yeah. that as. I mean, um, I did. I did see the. Uh, did you? Uh, did you see the Graham Linehan book thing? I think we talked about I it did, yeah. briefly, but it was like he he didn't make the top thousand books sold that week. Yeah, uh, which is including p sales. <laughs> yeah, he got beat by people that were very very well deserving. Yeah. Um, Anne wins asking, "How does the New York Times bestseller list work?" Um. So it's not actually based. How much trouble can I get in? <laughs> the New York Times bestseller list is an editorial that is paid for by the publishing houses. So they put restrictions onto it so that um, indies and self pubs could couldn't really get into the mainstream part of the list because they were getting beat by the, the indie authors and the self pubs. So the, a lot of the books that they were sinking money into were not performing as well. So the New York Times bestseller list is a curated list um, based on how many physical books are sold in a bookstore in your opening for your pre-orders, your launch week, basically. Um, so it's a kind of popularity contest based on how willing your publisher is to back you. Um, so it's that kind of you know you, the USA Today bestseller list is a little bit more a little bit more open a little bit more accessible, but the New York Times bestseller is very much um, are you part of the popular group and is your publisher willing to back you to try and get you the marketing to try and get you that number of pre-orders? Um, so that's that's how that works. It's basically a, an approved editorial that the. Um, they limit who can get onto the list because they didn't like the fact that a lot of indies were climbing the ranks, shall we say, without and a lot of the stuff that they were sinking money into was not getting on the list. So it's publishing is rigged. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, very much a rigged industry. Sorry, while Joy was talking there, I am trying to figure out how to turn off the alert sounds that are coming through. I didn't oh. even add the alerts into this scene. I have no idea how to turn them off. Um, and I deliberately muted a whole bunch of stuff prior to the stream. So all I can say is I'm so sorry and don't follow me until after this stream, please. <laughs> um, it's very strange. Uh, but yeah, I, I, like, I, I do find there is this gulf beginning to form in, you know, like trad pub versus, you know, independent publishers. Because... Like, I don't know, but I, I just, after, it's amazing, oh, Hunger Pangs opened my eyes, Joy, but like, after so <laughs> much of, like, I don't know, I'd say my faith in just trad pub is kind of shaken a little bit, in regards to, I now know that it's definitely not the only thing that produces good quality out there. Yes. And the moment your brain kind of makes that mental jump, suddenly you're like, well, what are these trad pub houses really for, except from protecting a very specific group? Um, yeah, I mean, and there are, there, I, I do hasten to add, it's not the fault of the editors, it's not the fault of the people that are yeah. working in there, it's the mandates they're getting from up on high from the CEOs who, they're basically protecting their profit margins. A lot yeah. of the editors, I mean, I can't believe I'm saying this, the, the, the HarperCollins editorial strike was this year. 
um, oh, and, and because they were not getting, you know, that that's how that was the start of this year. And you're going, oh, that's that's a thing. Um, but they were, they were striking because they weren't getting a living wage. Meanwhile, the the companies are having record profits. Um, but it's and they, they're but they're also claiming they're not profiting. But I I can't see how they're not. Yeah. But it's as someone who is very much involved with my own work. I'm looking at the industry as it is, and I can see that the collapse is imminent for a lot of things, even just with the cost of print books. Mm. Like this week alone, I, I'm having to change distributors because I'm not happy with my current one. And I was informed that my book would need to be sold at $25. Otherwise, I would be earning negative money. So yeah, if I use a negative book, 61 yeah. cents per book or something like that, was it? Yeah, yeah, and I'm currently what? earning four, four pence per paperback in the UK. That's out, like, yeah. uh, uh, that is outrageous. Four fucking pence. What? Yeah. How? How does that work? What's the, it, what's the, the logistics the, behind that? I mean, is it the print the costs? Cost print, the cost of print, and then that you have, as a self-pub author, you have to give the discount to the retailer. And you are, it's usually like 40% is the, the, the sta industry standard that you have to offer 40% you know, discount. So you're losing, say, 60%. You know, I'm, I'm doing math out. I, I currently lose 75% of my profit to the cost of print and retail discount. But that's... Ah, and then, yeah, it's not. <laughs> what? It's not what the good. fuck? I mean, like, um, because if if you if you spoke to any of your readers and you, I mean, you could easily go to any of your readers and say, yeah, actually, hunger pangs would be twenty five quid, and you'd probably get that. But at, at the same time, like, when you buy a book, I'm, you know, I'm expecting to that four pence. So like, people could be paying what, like, fourteen pounds. For the book, it's fifteen ninety nine, and I well, I think Waterstone sells it for seventeen ninety nine, and I get four pence from that because the rest of that is cost of print, retailer discount, and then the retailer's profit, and I get four pence. Um, and that's so is, broken. That's that's completely yeah. broken. As like that can't function because no one's going to be able to live off that. Yeah, that's kind of their, that's kind of what's happening is that they are. I'm just going to burn my bridges with Ingram Spark at this point because the distributor I am leaving is Ingram Spark because they've, oh, despite being we're so indie friendly, we love indies. They're really not because they are doing everything they can to make it so that we can't afford to print. Basically, is it the sort um, of thing like they said they were so supportive of indies to get that initial growth, and it's yes. now yeah yeah. Yeah, because you know, you know, everyone talks about how, you know, um, this was again this week as well. Someone said to me, well, that's what you get for using a vanity publisher. Ingram Spark is not a vanity publisher. They are a print distribution company that is used by self-pub, indie pub and trad pub. A lot of main, a lot of the big four trad pub houses use them as their print distributor because it's cheaper than having their own print house. So it's not that it's you know, it's not a vanity publisher. It's not, oh, give us money and we'll make your book into a book and then it doesn't go anywhere. They are a legitimate business company that has distribution channels through the global access market. And yeah. it's um, it's a very kind of... 
it's a monopoly because they bought all the other ones. So everyone says to me, oh, just use a lightning source in the UK. That'll work. Lightning source is owned by Ingram. Oh, yeah. use this country in Germany or use this company in Germany. They're owned by Ingram Spark. Yeah, so a lot of publishing hell. is a monopoly. A lot of it is a monopoly. And we used to have five big traditional publishing houses um, that were kind of like the bedrock for a long time. But now we have four. So we're heading more and more towards a complete monopoly. And again, we're going back to, well, if they have a monopoly, they can decide who gets published and who doesn't. And that's yeah. when you come back to what is functionally censorship because you're being told, well, actually, no one's going to read a story about a deaf disabled character. Yeah. Or and no one's going to read a Yeah. And it's, it's been pointed out in terms of capitalism fucks us all over. And it's good it for us to get onto our anti-capitalism horse so early. But, yeah. like... You know, they always talk about, oh, the, like, the free market and stuff. Now, I mean, obviously, you might have some, like, ultra-capitalists who say that that isn't free market at all. Um, and, you know, because these four companies are battling, like, they're not trying to really one-up each other. They're just kind of, like, becoming one giant conglomerated ooze. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, as I've mentioned in chat, uh, pay hips always a good shout. Um, yeah. Like, thank you for asking in the chat. That's very sweet. <laughs> that that but, is that is what gets you the most direct as well, isn't it? My, yeah, because my pay hub is my own individual storefront, so I I lose thirty percent of royalties to Amazon. But even when I'm losing that thirty percent to Amazon, I still get more for the eBooks than I do the print. So I yeah. I'm not even going to get into audio because audio's I I eighty percent of. <laughs> Audio um, with Audible and other retailers, uh, they claim 80% of my income. Unless you get the audiobook from Payhip, in which case I get to keep 90% of my income. So whenever people say to me, how do I support authors? I say, look and, look and see if they have their own individual store. Um, a lot of us will have our own individual store, but if you're a trad pub, you maybe don't have that option because the publisher wants the money. Yeah. Um, so it's the... Oh, there's my husband, there's Mothman, but um in the chat telling everyone to <laughs> get the ebook. But um I mean like from, from a production yeah. perspective, it's like, you know, the digital copy is obviously great. And what I mean, I imagine what Trad Pub like, you know, that advantage is, is they've got the connection to where it's printed. And yes. they'll, you know, be they'll, like they'll have the relationship in a way that an indie author who maybe wants to get print will have to go to a printer and negotiate some sort of like I would like to produce this many copies and you know it's a, it's a little bit more challenging um, print, most print companies are now print on demand so that's another fun thing as well because a lot of places are saying oh it, you know using my book example Hunger Pants is out of stock it is physically impossible to be out of stock because my book is print on demand yeah. so there's no stock to run out of um, but it's it's a weird kind of place to be in where you have big name authors like Jody Pico saying, oh, like, um, what was it she said? It was the whole like, oh, if you go with TradPub, you get rewarded because they take care of you. They do your marketing. They take all the costs out of it. And I'm going, they don't do any marketing unless you are the, the you know, their chosen one to try and get you on bestseller lists they do very little marketing and the, the, you know, the onus of marketing is now mostly on the authors themselves. 
I was going to um, say, the amount of times you've told me that, like, publishers look at people's, like, Twitter following and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you have an existing following before we put any effort and energy into, you know... I, I have several Tradpub friends whose work I adore, um, and <laughs> they come to my blog because they're like, hey, bestie, you get more traction than what the official Twitter account for this does. That's and Tumblr like, oh. and your hard work, but that's Tumblr. <laughs> it's Tumblr and the fact that I have a bookish community that yeah. I have spent time investing in. And it's it's very shocking to me that, you know, these a lot of these trad pub authors who are slightly older in the game at this point are just like, oh, but they take care of you and do your marketing. Meanwhile, every single trad pub friend I have is like, oh, they're telling me I'm not doing enough marketing and I'm responsible for if I don't earn out my royalties. Yeah. And I'm not going to get paid if I don't earn them out. And it's just like, well, that's bad. (laughs) Um, So it's just, it's just such a weird take to, I mean, even Neil Gaiman's slightly guilty of this. He gives, Neil Gaiman doesn't do it condescendingly, um, but he does give outdated advice sometimes. And then several of myself, you know, my friends and my, my editors actually follow him on Tumblr as well. And sometimes when he gives advice, we go, (laughs) <laughs> that's not going to work anymore. Um, it would have worked maybe 10, 20 years ago, but it doesn't necessarily work for the way the industry is now. Yeah, and the world moves too fast. These, yeah, and it's, you know, kind of well-meaning advice that he gives might lead you slightly astray, but the stuff that she was saying was just outright not true anymore. It was just straight up, just like, you know, your agent's in your corner, your publisher's in your corner, and it's like, and individually, the people are probably in your corner, but the company itself is not a guaranteed backer. If you don't earn, they can drop you. Yeah. I also think there's, I mean, like, there is also an entire, like, class aspect to what she's saying as well, when it's like, you know... It is more accessible for someone to independently publish, and yeah. that's uh, like not not just from uh, the types of stories that are being told, but also just financially, like being able to like pay if someone wants to make money off of what they're writing. Like, I mean, if you're, you know, you're not coming from a very affluent family or or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, you might be working like two <laughs> two jobs plus to like yeah. and then writing in your evenings or, or whatever it is it just seems like a very callous way of like gatekeeping and most writers can't afford to have writing be their sole income unless they got you know unless they've somehow done a jk rowling or a <laughs> stephen king and it's you know it's people look at that and they go oh well there's so much money in the industry there's not. There's money for a select few people that the industry decides to go, oh, yeah, this is doing well. We should put everything we have behind this. Yeah. Um, and it's very kind of, it is a, it, it's Mothman saying it's a very privilege to be rejected hundreds of times because, you know, I, I could have accepted the offer that my publisher made, but I would have been significantly financially worse off if I had because they were actively, they didn't believe in what I was doing. Yeah. And then after they saw how well it did, the numbers that they then pitched to me were just outright exploitation. And I was like, why? It's not even worth it to have you do the covers. It's not worth it for you to do my formatting and my editing because I'm still out earning what you are offering me. 
Yeah. And I know that's not, that's not true for everybody who does this. I am aware that I am very lucky. I am so fortunate that I have a federal Tumblr following who's like, yeah, <laughs> we're going to we're gonna break the Amazon algorithm just because we like joy. Also, I think because you wanted to break Amazon, which, you know, fair, absolutely. <laughs> but, well, um, yeah. <laughs> it was... <sighs> Another thing that Pico said was, you know, if you're if you're coming into this and you know you don't have an established following, you know you're just you're you're gonna get you might be wheat, but you're gonna get lost with the chaff. And I was like, oh, and <laughs> Indian self pub is the chaff in her mind, um, and it's the a way it's the way a lot of trad pub authors think. They want the legitimacy of trad pub. So, uh, but at the same how, time, how are you how are you supposed to gain a following through your writing? to actually sell yourself into publishers, to traditional publishers. Yeah. But you Um, also can't publish anything indie. You're just stuck. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend whose work I was promoting. Um, I will promote it again in February when it's coming out again. But she tried to sell her... It was a black fairy tale story um, that she wanted to sell, and they were told the market was too saturated. Meanwhile, everyone who's part of the romanticy genre is probably laughing really hard because they're churning out fairy romance stories like it's never going to end. But she was told, oh, the market's too saturated, no one's going to want it. So she decided to do self-pub. And there was a, you know, um, a couple of conversations we had, and I was talking her through how to do a couple of things. And she posted about it on TikTok, and so they realized the amount with her pre-order she almost got to like bestseller status overnight oh shit and a <laughs> nice. bunch of publishers went holy crap we messed up um and they she got picked up by a fantastic author agency and now she is being officially published by one of the houses that told her there was no market for her book because they saw the figures that she was producing by herself um it's kind of I, like yeah. frustrating that like th- that she had to go to that like to that length to like prove and now has ha- mm-hmm. has gone that route. Um, mm-hmm. You know, kind of want people to stick the finger up at really predatory um, trad pubs, but yeah. And the thing is, I'm really happy for her that she has been picked up because trad pub does need the type of story she's telling. Um and. You could argue that Trad Pub needs the kind of disability stuff that I'm writing as well, but yes. I'm such a control freak that I'm I don't trust them with it. I'm like I look at what I look at the the changes that were suggested to me, and I go, that's not a disability story. That's an inspiration story, and I don't want you to do that to my work. Yeah. Um. And to me it's they don't have the level of sensitivity that i want for things like every single person every single editor that works on my work has some form of disability whether it's mental or physical we are all very much in the same group i don't think actually thinking about it i don't think there's anyone who worked on any part of hunger pangs that is neurotypical and or able-bodied like it's one of those situations where you're like oh yeah this was really a group effort of the people (laughs) who want to see this sort of thing be made um and and i think it's like it's is very from a reader's perspective it's very good that you have that sort of like feeling towards it because i think if you'd went trad pub i don't think hunger pangs would have been as good Um, i don't think it would have hit any of the milestones that it did like i literally it's it's still a lot of authors a lot of their sales come from the first month 
of their stuff. It's been three years at this point. I'm so sorry it's been three years, but again, I'm a multiply disabled author. I work at my own pace. I'm still selling what a lot of trad pub authors make in a year, and I'm doing that in months. And it's because the community is going, oh, holy shit, this is actual disability rep. This is actual whatever. And it's not like inspiration porn, which is yeah. what a lot of that stuff is. Um, so it's just the... Um, Sorry, I'm reading Tundra's comment there. I think you're allowed to have control issues with disability stuff after how poorly those in control treated you during your own disability issues. I trust you more than anyone else to tell a story about disability and love without a fix. Thank you. That that is actually what it is. It's a it's a huge part of being, you know, like I again, I pitched it to my old publisher who I worked with for years. Yeah. I was one of their sensitivity readers, I was their editor. Um and I was telling you know, a story that was very accurate to me, despite there being vampires and werewolves in it. And I was being told, this isn't relatable. And I remember thinking, it's not relatable to whom? <laughs> yeah, to, not, to you, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not relatable to a mainstream audience. I'm going, cool, the mainstream audience is not really my target for this. There's a huge... There is a huge untapped, you know, audience of people that don't get catered to. They don't get pandered to. Um, and the other thing was I wanted to do, because I have two versions of the book. I have the Flirting with Fangs edition, which has the steamy scenes, and then the Fluff and Fangs, which still has some, you know, kind of heated moments between characters. But it's been replaced with either different scenes or fade to black scenes for people that just don't like to read about sex, which um, I told the publisher that. And they looked at me and said, why would anyone not want sex in their books? Hmm. And I was like, well, some romance readers just don't like sex because they don't, they view, they view that as smart, that's not romance. But also there are people that are sex repulsed. There's people who maybe just want to make the choice about which kind of story they read. People who want and to have their imaginations wander instead. Yeah, There's yeah. Variety. And like also the, the sexual community and everything else. And... My old editor looked at me as if to say, you're insane, it will never sell. And you know what? It doesn't sell as well as the, the, the you know, the flirting edition. But I would do it again. I would do it again mm. in a heartbeat just because it means so much to certain people. Like the messages I get from people going, oh, a romance book I could read without feeling left out. A book I could read about emotions and catharsis and all this stuff where I was not excluded based on sexual identity or preference or whatever and i was like yeah i would do it again it it it's not financially beneficial for me to do it to be honest but i will continue to do it because i want my work to be accessible to people and i want people to have options i want people to be able to choose and i don't see why that's so controversial and why that i was treated <laughs> yeah. kind of like this is insane why, why would you do that and i'm like i don't know like i i, I just feel like you gain more by including people than excluding them. And for them, profit-wise, it just didn't make sense. And I'm like, okay, well, I have to acknowledge at this point that although profit is part of it because I need to be able to eat and to pay my bills, you know, there's sometimes there's parts of stories that are more important than mainstream. Like, I'm, I'm not selling... I'm not selling to be a best-selling author. I'm not selling for purely for profit. I'm selling my work because I want these stories to be told because I think they matter. Um, and I am in a position where I am fortunate enough that I can put out my own work. Um, I have a spouse who works full-time, 
whose wage covers most of our stuff and I'm able to contribute financially because of people who buy my work. But um, it's just, for me, it was the choice between, oh, I can choose to be profitable or I can choose to actually make something that matters to me. And that's a level of privilege that not everyone has. And I, I fully understand that. But at the same time, in you know, it shouldn't be that trad pub is so against that. They should, mm. they, you know, they're so adverse to taking any sort of risk. Um, hunger pangs would be a marketing nightmare for these people. They and they don't understand <laughs> how they, they don't understand how it's doing well. And I'm like, because I'm not marketing it in the way that you it's not algorithmically pleasing. Um and it's a weird situation to be in where you have all these trad pub authors going, oh well, you know, they're taking the easy way out. And I'm going, this is a literal labor of love that I have sunk thousands of hours into mm. to make this thing that I hope people will enjoy and that I hope will speak to them and maybe make them feel not as alone. Um and it was a very kind of it was a very cathartic moment for me when I outsold the predicted number and the, the numbers that they told me like you know, it, it it was a very kind of condescending conversation I had with my former editor, who I thought was my friend, who was kind of like, Joy, this is, you're going to lose a lot of money on this because no one's going to buy this unless you make these changes. Mm. And I went ahead with it anyway, expecting it to fail because it felt important. And it didn't fail because of you lovely people. So thank you very much. But to see that sentiment is still being echoed, especially by big, big authors like Jodie Pico who are going, this is the easy way. Fuck yeah, you. It's... Just fuck you. There's <laughs> nothing easy about any of this. I've got one question, actually, that's like, will Tradpub look at authors who have previously indie-pubbed in a different light? Like, for example... They... Yeah. So there used to be a kind of... Um, no one will touch you if you've indie pubbed or self pubbed before because you bypass the system and it's kind of like oh well you know you you you're you're already kind of like sold, um, and they don't want to take on like a burden of previous stuff. But now they're looking at you and they're going oh you have an already existing audience or oh you kind of have already done this. Um, there's a lot of people that are now doing hybrid, which right. is they are traditionally published but they do their own indie stuff at, on the side. Um, and I hope that hybrid will become more common, but I there's still a very snooty, elitist attitude that comes out of a lot of trad pub circles, which is, well, if you can't get published properly, you don't deserve to be here. And it's like, what is that if it's not censorship? You know, they argue that it's regulations and quality control. But when you you turn around and you tell a fantastic author, oh, there's no room for any more fairy tale stories at this time. And then there's millions and millions of them being churned out every day That's... and they're doing really well. And it's like, oh, what's the one difference? Oh, her, her main character's black. Oh, okay. Okay, that's, that's every single publisher up until that point showed their face. Yeah. You know. Um, it's it's, it's, it's weird because it's like to even, like, to deny that a specific type of story is oversaturated as if, like, you know, fucking... Like, if you look at the amount of samey pish that comes away in other entertainment industries, like, people churning out the exact same stuff all the time. I mean, how many fucking superhero films have we had that's got the same plot? 
you know, it's like oversaturation that doesn't really exist because someone like even on the ones that are maybe a very bland and very kind of trimmed and streamlined, like a lot of trad pub would maybe force authors to cut their stories, it'll still appeal to someone. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, that kind of um, yeah. your story doesn't mo- have merit is a bit wanky. It is. It's very wanky. It's very kind of. Um, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm getting distracted by chat. Everyone's pointing out that Brandon Sanderson is now a hybrid author. He is because mm. his publisher told him he was writing too much and they didn't want to put out that much work. And he is now looking at the industry and the self pub, and he's going, "Holy shit! These people are being exploited." And yeah. It's like yes, someone who gets it. Um, you, you need authors like that. That you know. You do. Like not the. What's her name? Jodie Pico. Yeah, Jodie like, Pico. Not, I mean, not someone this... like that going and being a twat on TikTok, but instead... Yeah. Going... And the thing is, she made a video right after it that was, hey guys, that's, you know, I've seen some people getting angry and, you know, that's not what I was saying. I was saying uh, how difficult it is. And I'm going... Was she wearing a grey hoodie? Did you get a ukulele out? <laughs> not quite, but she did. She didn't have any makeup <laughs> on for it. Oh, but God. Um, she, she said it and she's like, it's actually very difficult and there are some people that are just better off with trad pub. If you are if you are able to do it, fantastic. When I'm like, okay, so don't call it the easy way out. Don't yeah. be condescending about it. There are different styles of authors who want to do different things. One is not inherently better than the other. Um, and then she deleted both of them. <laughs> like <laughs> make a controversial statement apologize for the controversial statement erase it from memory you're fine you did it that's what i do to my posts on tumblr as well to be honest like, if, it, if it bombs i'm just like i'm gonna kill it stone dead <laughs> <laughs> but it's the it's yeah it's a very kind of the balls it took to go on book talk and say that self-publishing is easy. Yeah. You might as well have just walked into a self-publishing convention and and just took a shit in the middle of the floor <laughs> and then wondered why people were upset with you. Like, I just... I mean, I understand... Like, I am not a huge fan of all the corners of book talk. There are very supportive corners that are very nice and lovely and sane and normal. Um, and then there's the unhinged people that are causing drama and claiming that they saved the sport of hockey by writing a hockey romance. I, yeah. Um, it's, you know, nothing is a monolith. Nothing is a monolith. Like, trad pub is varies as well. Indian self-pub all vary. No mm-hmm. one's experiences are going to be the same. And the fact that you have this attitude of, well, you're not really an author because you're not doing it my way, fuck that. Yeah. Even if you write for yourself and you publish one thing for yourself, you have written a thing. You are an author. You're not a commercial author, but you're still an author. Yeah. It would refute anyone that says, well, it's not real. How dare I you? S- you don't get to invalidate someone like that. And especially when you're coming from such a place of profound privilege where your work got picked up 30 years ago when the landscape of publishing was so different. Yeah. It's like, I mean, th- really, 30 years ago, a lot of people didn't have the fucking means to write their own stuff in any way. Like, I mean, th- 30 years ago is, what, 1993? Yeah. Fuck, that was 30 years ago. Christ. Yep. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, don't get me wrong, I know that folk obviously had 
like all the tools weren't available to people then. Um, which no, is that wasn't uh, a thing. You know, you had like you had. They're called typewriters. Um, sorry. <laughs> remember, remember that was before Word came out. Now, <laughs> when did Word come out? Actually, fuck. Chat is currently having a crisis. <laughs> But, um, no, no, sorry. Microsoft yeah. Word came out in 1983, so ten years prior to that. <laughs> Jesus. Um, thirty years ago, I was uh, minus three. I, I was six. <laughs> okay, okay. But, you know, let's let's move on quickly before we all have an existential <laughs> crisis because that's horrible. Um, but yeah, just. Wrapping up, <laughs> don't be a dick. Don't put people down for how they choose to express their art and to make a living. There is no yeah. easy way of making a living in this world. The fact that some people think there is, is just, it shows a level of class privilege that I can't comprehend. But um, yeah, don't be mean. I because feel, people will come for you. I feel like that's becoming more and more common though on like a lot of socials is that like, a lot, at least some of I'm not sure if it's just the, the bad ends of TikTok that I end up, but I encounter a lot of people who say things as if it's like, I've just found this out today, and then they state something just absolutely pish as like fact. Um, and it's like very confidently, like they're, they're trying to, they're, they're coming at it from an angle that they're educating an audience. And like like the way that Jodie Pico was, you know, educating an audience on publishing versus indie publishing, but just coming away as, like, completely disingenuous, but also not being aware enough to then go, this is just my experience, this is just my opinion, I've not, yeah. like, even being able to state, I've never self-published, I have always uh, been picked up um, by a traditional publisher, it's, it's becoming more and more of a thing. Uh, presents themselves. I think. I think that's part of the problem with content creation being so easy. So it's very easy mm. if you have an iota of confidence to speak as though you were speaking from a place of experience and knowledge. And yeah. there are people who spout horrific, awful things, and they sound so confident saying it that people go, "Yeah, that must make sense." Yeah. Um. There's the you know the cult of personality. Someone can be very charismatic and engaging, and that can be their whole thing. They can sit, they could sell. It's how I've got this far, actually. <laughs> <laughs> the, no, like you're, you're right though. I mean, I think one of the things is that a lot of people are now saying really like evil shit constantly mm -hmm. or things that are deliberate, deliberately like controversial and stuff like that. And then people obviously rip it apart or they see it and they share it because they think it's it's truth i mean one thing that i've noticed recently on tumblr is when i have posted things from like articles from like british newspapers like broadsheet newspapers um i have a lot of people now coming into my comments and my replies saying this has got to be satire and it's becoming really fucking annoying because it's not what satire is and people are now just claiming, like, that... I, I, I kind of take an approach online, is obviously you could say that everyone lies, and everyone always talks shit online, but 
I think there's a lot of evil people stating what they believe is completely true, and they have people not realising that they are defending horrendous views by claiming that it's satire, or claiming that it's somehow a joke, and, oh, like, you've, you've missed the sarcasm in this. Like, you know, when you see, like, the alt-right on, uh, online, and you see people posting, like, really horrendous shit, and then they get to kind of escape and be like, oh, it was just a joke. It's like kind of like that dog whistle approach where, oh, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that. Why are you getting angry about this? I didn't really mean that. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of going... But you can't take a joke. You can't take a joke. I mean, it's the bullying thing to do when they're like, oh, it's a joke. You just can't take a joke. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, maybe your joke should be funny. <laughs> I know, like, satire always has to have, like, a kind of purpose to it. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you're... Like you can't you can't write a satirical article if the genuine articles look exactly like it. Like it's got to be like for satire to work, I think it's got to be obviously satire. Um, satire. The intention of satire is to punch upwards at a from a punch upwards at a source of power. So if your satire hmm. is punching down at a marginalized group, that's not satire. It's bullying. Yeah. Um. And it's, I see a lot of it where people go, oh, actually, it's satire. And it's like, that's not what that means. This is just being, it's just being mean and it's being framed in a funny way. Yeah. Um, As Mothman's saying in chat, satire needs to be recognizable in the moment uh, rather than like the post breakdown analysis that people do. Um, Because I think a lot of people confuse like satire and sarcasm and it's just kind of become this stand in for. Um, oh, they don't really mean that. Mm-hmm. Um, when... I mean, I had. To I remember it was actually Mothman's little sister. Um, one of her friends took great offence to um, Blazing Saddles. Okay. Um, the, the Mel the Mel Brooks one, and it's like it's it's just but it's so racist, it's so this, and I'm like, yes, it's a Jewish director working with a black actor to poke fun at the racist stereotypes that Hollywood gets away with. Mm. It's intentionally supposed to make you uncomfortable because it wants you to look at your at how these things are often played for gags. Yeah. That is satire. Um and it's some people some people it goes over their heads. But I think with a lot of the younger ones, they a lot you know I see a lot of them going, oh well, but that it's it, you know they're confusing satire for perpetuation of the stereotype without understanding the medium with and the intent behind satire because they think mm. it's just the same thing as sarcasm. They think it's yeah. the same thing as mean humor, and it's like that's not what this is. And we're being failed by, you know, it, schools don't teach it anymore. Like I, I always remember the. Um, I'm no spring chicken, as everyone's in the chat has reminded me when we pointed at the 1990 was 30 years ago. But I remember in when I was in my critical thinking class for English literature, the teacher refused to let us read satire because she said it was too advanced for us. We were 17 years old. And I was like, Media surely taking a hit. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, surely yeah. you should be if this is complex, surely you should be teaching it. Yes. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be on the cusp of adulthood and not understand these concepts. I should be able to think critically about the media I consume. And 
I mean, I was, some people have mentioned Terry Pratchett in the, in the chat. I was raised on Terry Pratchett. I was given a Terry Pratchett book and left to my own devices for 20 years. <laughs> it turned out fine. Uh, <laughs> but it was that I learned from that. I learned a lot of, you know, critical thinking skills from that because I realized I was being nudged to think about tropes in a certain way and to think about genres in a certain way. And my teachers didn't like it because they're going, no, you, you know, this is not what you're being taught. This is, you're, you're being taught to pass an exam. Yeah. And I always was thankful that my dad used to just give me a library card and just go, go child, be free. <laughs> I would just go and read whatever the hell I wanted. Um, but a lot of children don't have that now. Mm. And I see it a lot in a lot of the Gen Zs and everything else. I can see the effects of their education, not teaching them to actually recognize things. And I see it when people talk about like, um, genre literacy is not a thing anymore because people always say to me, well, I say, well, Hunger Pangs is a, you know, a gas lamp fantasy romance book, blah, blah, blah. And I, they say to me, okay, but what's it about? And I'm going, lots well, of romance. And they go, yeah, but what's it about? And I'm going, you're not understanding. Romance isn't a theme, it's a genre. Yeah. And that, that tells you what it does. Yeah. And they don't, they don't comprehend that. And I'm going, well, mm. they, they, they've lost genre literacy. It's not been taught anymore. Um, think... And that, that's, not, that's not their fault. But it's, yeah. it shows with a lot of the way people are consuming media right now that they don't have genre awareness. They just have, is it algorithm friendly? And is it, you know, like kind of, is it problematic? And it's like, well, people would absolutely consider, you know, Blazing Saddles does have problematic moments. But it's intentional because it wants to make you uncomfortable and go, oh, shit, actually, yeah, we did do a lot of that stuff, didn't we? Yeah, and that's like, half the point. I mean, like, yeah. one of the, like, on the, like, the literacy side of it, I think there was a really, there was a really obvious one this week where, like, a new episode of South Park came out, and, like, I I I watched, like, I, I didn't grow up with South Park. I think I watched it when I kind of understood it a bit more or could understand it a bit more. Um, I I don't like South Park particularly because of how it does things. I think it makes a lot of people very comfortable in all of their kind of bigotry because it's mm -hmm. like, because it's all played for laughs as opposed to, like, actually highlighting the the bad things about this but there's there's a scene where like um cartman is talking about he's he's ranting to like a therapist or a doctor about how everyone in the town is being replaced and um kathleen kennedy who um manages like the star wars kind of franchise is like replacing all of the characters in the show with like diverse forms so like one of the kids is like you know turned into like an asian woman and a uh, cartman's replaced with a, a black woman and all, all this kind of stuff and you had you basically had two sides of twitter one saying like that's making fun of the right wing who say all this shit and okay. you had everyone on the right wing going eh, oh man south park totally owned everyone in hollywood take that um and it's similar to how, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen The Boys on Amazon, the kind of superhero. I have, yeah. Yeah. So it's like the amount of people who enjoy that show who think that Homelander's great and like idolize <laughs> Homelander. Like, I, I don't know how you reach that. Because like when I watched like the first, at least the first two seasons, it was like, he's the obvious bad guy. The first time yeah. you really get an introduction to him. 
he kills everyone on a plane for for fun, basically. And for for whatever reason, you've got these people who, because he's portrayed as this like right wing, like kind of ubermensch Nazi type figure who has a Nazi girlfriend, uh, the 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 see it as like a, oh, this is a commentary on all of the 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 woke like stuff, and it's just mm-hmm. it's it's weird how people can read things like totally different. Because I mean, I, I like the boys is definitely poking fun at all of the shit, but these guys are convinced that Homelander's the the protagonist. Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's a weird. Like, I I've I've fully fallen into a Batman fixation. That's yeah. <laughs> I'm fully that that which is leading into our next rant as well. But um, I recently watched the Gotham series, okay. and um, it, it's. Is, sorry, good, this is, is this this is the Gotham series where he's young, isn't he? Yeah, where Bruce is like eight years old or whatever. I, I'm not and gonna like, lie, like, I fucking love that series. <laughs> I enjoyed good, it. It's, it's but good, it's also, but it's not. It, it, it's um, it's fanfic, and I yeah. love that they got that. I love that someone got paid to write their fanfic. But um, people, Cameron Monaghan's good in it. Yeah, I was I was looking up all the you know, like I was looking back at things because I I I don't mind spoilers, so I was looking up stuff to see what would happen because I'm like I'm gonna be so annoyed if this happens. Um, <laughs> and the discourse that I found from people being like, um, it was, uh, this is just pandering to left woke media, and I'm going, it's copaganda. How the fuck is it pandering <laughs> to left woke media? Like it's so obviously copaganda. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, well, you know, like, it was just, it was so surreal to see how differently people were reading into it. And I'm like, we're not watching the same thing, but we are <laughs> watching the same thing. We just have completely different outlooks. But they were kind of going, oh, they're too soft and blah, blah, blah. If they were like, they should be doing this. I'm going, Gotham's a police military state. How can you say this as like a LGBT like, leftist haven? It's Gotham. But they were yeah. like, oh yeah, well, the you know the the whole arc between Penguin and Riddler that just shows you it's left nonsense. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> I I I really did enjoy. Like, it's such a shame that the final season was the final season because they tried to wrap up everything really quickly, and it's a bit of a mess. Uh, but is like, is the final season not set in like a Gotham that's like cut off from the world? It's like apocalyptic, is it yeah. not? Yeah, uh, it's yeah. It's basically Gotham is the final villain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, good luck. Gotham is now um, a sentient entity of horror. I liked but, how um, Alfred is like a, like a Royal Marine or something in it as well, because he's constantly defending Bruce. Um, he is. And that led to the Pennyworth series, which I haven't watched yet, but I'm going to, just because I'm this fixation's not going anywhere anytime soon. Oh, fuck, but, um, yeah. I forgot that that was actually a thing. Is it, same, yeah. is it a spin-off of that? It's a spin-off from that. It's based on the Alfred from Gotham, yeah. Okay, that's cool. So, but it's, it's like a uh, young Alfred, isn't it? Like yeah, it's young even... Alfred. It's, it's Alfred learning to be a spy, basically. <laughs> it's just uh, amazing. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be watching that next, so that will probably be the next <laughs> next podcast. Nice. But, um, I, at the moment, yeah. I'm just I'm just deep into House at the moment. Uh, oh, and I can't watch House anymore. It's, it's, it's too, too much in it. It's, yeah, it's like some of the stuff I'm sitting there is like, you would get crucified if you wrote that now. Holy shit. How, yeah. like, 
is is not so like racist he is. Like he's constantly yeah. racist towards Foreman, and it's like, how the fuck was this given a free pass? Um but yeah, there's there's definitely some horrendous ableist shit there. And like everyone's a bastard in it. Absolutely yeah. every single it's person is a bastard nice in this person. show. No. Yep. I mean, like, even even Wilson, who's portrayed as the pure of heart nice guy, is a total bastard. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, watching that at the moment in it is, it's, it's rough. But it's like, you can just stick it on and have it on in the background. Yeah, which is what I've been doing with a lot of DC media. I've just been putting it on in the background. Like, I was even watching um, Lois and Clark, The Adventures of Superman from the okay. 90s. And I was watching that, and it was... it. It's kind of the holdover from when you know, super movie stuff was okay with being campy. Yeah. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. I was sitting there going, yeah, you know what, actually, I'm really enjoying the fact that it's not so dark that you can't see everything. I'm really enjoying it that it's a villain of the week with overarching plots. I'm really, I was enjoying how silly and fun it was. And I'm going, that's honestly what we're missing from a lot of superhero media is the fun. And like, the origins of it are so fun as well. And it's like, oh, they're just so afraid of being seen as campy and silly. And it's because a lot of the media has been made by people who hate the comic books. It's like how Game of Thrones was so bad was because it was made by people that hate fantasy. They wanted it to be gritty realism. And yeah. you're going, they've got flying lizards, mate. Like, there's only so realistic you can make this. Exactly. Um, one one show that I thought straddled that quite well, and I'm glad that Blue or Lights mentioned uh, Villain of the Week, but I thought... Uh, the Smallville. Smallville was a really good Superman TV series. I really enjoyed yeah. Smallville and it did have a monster of the week because it was while he was at high school and um, the mo- the villain of the week was normally like tainted by the kryptonite or something like that. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. like that's how it's done and you find out there's all these different types of kryptonite and all that. So I'm not really big on Superman but I did enjoy Smallville. I think it would be quite hard to go and watch it because now that, as Snowy's mentioned, yeah. the, the lady from oh. Smallville joined a cult where, like, I think there was, oh. there was like, human trafficking involved and they, yeah. she, like, branded people? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a sex cult. Um, yeah, and not, not one of the fun sex cults, a bad no. sex cult. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff about that that I every time I now look at Smallville, I'm like, I don't think I can watch her character just because I know y- yeah, what the it, actress yeah, is. Um, yeah, it's it's really really strange. Can like, yeah, I I think it's hard to watch media from so it's like it's why I still can't listen to Lost Prophets and I never will again. <laughs> you know, it's it's like that level of evil where you're like, yeah. nah, there's no there's no way I'm touching that again. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, like, Smallville at the time fit that, it, it was, it was before the proper, like, Marvel superhero pish It was, yeah, in. the reboot. Um, I mean, you can, I honestly think the downfall for a lot of stuff was, and I say this with love in my heart because Heath Ledger was one of my favourite Jokers. mm a lot of that Batman media was how do we make Batman grim and intimidating and not like the the George Clooney Batman that had nipples on his yeah. chest. And the thing and was that the, the first film of that actually did a not bad job because yeah. it was it was Gotham and it had the monorail and stuff. And then like I'm pretty sure the Dark Knight just <laughs> it's just like 
Boston <laughs> or like Boston, is it yeah. Chicago or whatever it is. Uh, I think it's Chicago. Um, but it, it's just a, it's just a city. It's not got the gothic architecture or anything like that. The whole of the Dark Knight <laughs> doesn't really have any of it. Um, and then like I think I'm trying to remember was the Batman film this year or last? The Robert Pattinson one. Year. I think it was last year. Yeah, like I think me and Jessica had went to see that in the cinema, and it was like you know, I I don't I don't want to think about how, I mean obviously things like TikTok and stuff are probably impacting our attention spans in some way, but like a three and a half hour Batman film was fucking rough in the cinema. It was, I, I think I that a lot of films don't need to be three and a half hours, and a lot yeah. of them are like oh we're just making it's they're making them long and long, and I'm going. If someone had the audacity to cut down Lord of the Rings, you can cut this down. Like, I... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the I thing can't... is, like, <laughs> me and Jessica recently rewatched all the Lord of the Rings, and we we watched The Fellowship over two evenings, we watched The mm-hmm. Two Towers over three evenings, and then we watched the longest one, the four hour, twenty minutes one, all in one sitting. Uh, for some reason. But it's like, I can... Yeah. I, I don't know if it was... Like, I just... The Batman was, like absolutely pitch dark it was like the lighting in films has gotten worse i think the lighting and the sound yes yeah, uh, one, well. one of the reasons i don't go to the cinema a lot of the time is because the sound the music's too loud you can't hear the, and it's not an age yeah. thing it's it's purely it's you can see the quality control has gone down it's so dark that i'm sitting there kind of going i can't tell who's talking but then i look at films like lord of the rings I can see everybody just fine, even though you're in the middle of a pitch black battle. And that's good cinematography. Yeah. I mean, um, well, like, compare and contrast, the, like, the, the single best battle in in a night setting is the Battle of Helm's Deep. I have, yes. not, I have not seen a battle taking place at night that is done... A good, just, just make it blue. We get it. We know it's supposed to be dark. I also like to see the, the fight, please. I want to see Aragorn like, kill Urukai. I also like to be able to hear what the actors are saying. Yeah. It's, over the boom of the ambience in the background. I saw a thing that was talking about how um like a lot of it's to do with the advancement in like mic technology and why like a lot of people need subtitles. I I, I use subtitles for pretty much everything. I would have subtitles mm-hmm. on stream if the subtitle generator would actually work and not completely hack up my accent. Um, but the the way that the like the mics work now is like previously in like really really old films, obviously you had the the big mic that maybe had to be like hidden in the scenery or whatever, mm-hmm. but they had to very much speak towards that microphone to be picked up. Now with all the kind of fancy lapel stuff and whatever, um, actors can afford to not like project as much. They can, mm-hmm. you know, like we want you to mumble and they can mumble knowing that the mic will pick it up in some form. Then it's up to some audio engineer to try and like perfect it um, and make it available for people to hear in a film. But yeah, I'd, I'd much prefer the, I'm, I like to I have subtitles on with pretty much everything now. Um, I, I have audio processing um, disorder, hmm. so I will hear things. Which, fun fact, ADHD, it wouldn't be an Icefair podcast without me going, by the way, fun fact about ADHD, a lot of us have audio processing disorder, which means we don't hear what is being, our brain doesn't process what we're hearing. And it's 
you need the subtitles for your eyes to follow so that the brain can make sense of it at the same time. And you get, a lot of the time you go to the cinema, you can ask for subtitles and they're supposed to put them on, but a lot of the time they either don't do it or the subtitles don't match the actual dialogue. Yeah. Um, which was, a th- I mean, Neil Gaiman talked about that when Good Omens 2 came out. The subtitles were being auto-generated. They weren't being typed up by hand. So you had glaring, obvious mistakes that you're going, why was this allowed to go through? Why is no one checking this? Um, And Yeah. It's almost like getting an algorithm to auto-generate stuff's a terrible idea. We're going to have a fucking AI rant. Shit. We are. We have to. But that was Neil Gaiman was like, oh yeah, they were good for the first one because he manually went through it himself and he fixed them. Yeah. So that the people at Amazon could go back and fix it. And I'm going, oh, so they didn't do it this time because of the writer's strike. So it meant that an accessibility feature was neglected and just left to an algorithm. It was like, yep. cool. Cool, cool, cool. That's why I couldn't watch it the, when it first released because I couldn't hear... My brain could not process what I was hearing, and I the thing I was reading on the screen was different from what my brain was seeing or hearing, and it meant I couldn't follow it. And I think and when, I like, like when the like turnover and revenue from these industries is so astronomical, there is absolutely no excuse. Um, mm-hmm. Like obviously, there's the whole uh, like the writer strike. There's obviously making sure that your visual effects people are paid properly, and all of this needs heavily unionized uh by the same time like flipping that on its head and trying to replace people with like fucking cheap like you know out the package ai generative shite uh will uh, like absolutely impact people's accessibility for things um mm-hmm. and you know like that is probably quite a good segue into our topic we're going to talk a lot about kind of gaming uh accessibility um which I think is a really interesting topic because it's uh, there's basically a lot of things in the games industry that need looked at. Um, you can talk about, yeah, which I can, I, yeah, which I I can talk about. And I think, like for me, I think there's there's certain expectations in the games industry, um, and I think there's a certain um there's there's expectations from like a kind of healthy gaming community and then there is the entitled expectations of a very vocal group of um what i call gamers with a trademark sign after it uh capital g gamers if you will um they they have expectations that kind of apply to all games that they touch and i think what Sorry, I'm trying to find a way to word this in a semi-diplomatic way, but basically you've got large-as-fuck studios that absolutely should have the budget and Mm -hmm. the ability to do pre-production in a way that accessibility is built in from stage one and not added in as an afterthought. And to be absolutely fair, as much as I bash um, some of the bigger studios... Um, I'm talking about like folk like you know Ubisoft and Naughty Dog mm-hmm. and and stuff like that. Um, to be fair to them, they have built in very good accessibility tooling. Um, you know, like I played Assassin's Creed Mirage a couple of weeks ago, and 
the moment I booted up the game the first time, uh, it had things like the menu narration was turned on by default, um, and you had to manually go and, you know, disable it if you wanted to do that. Um, you know, it's not just subtitles, it's subtitles with background, it's having subtitles with the, the speaker, um, it's having subtitles with the speaker's name in a different colour, depending on who's speaking, um, you've got all of the kind of innovation on, um, you know, like eye, uh, like colour blindness, you've got all the different types, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, there's multiple types of colour blindness and a lot of them have tints and filters to make it as accessible for someone who's colorblind as possible um and it is 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 something that's like impressive and definitely should be a, like there should be a discussion to make this an industry standard and i think a lot of mm -hmm. large studios should have to abide by it where this gets a little bit more complicated unfortunately is the world of indie games um indie games obviously being a bit more affordable for the most part but also not having i mean some some indie games don't have a publisher at all um some indie games are developed by a team of less than five people um like and when i say a game's developed by less than five people that's not a team of five that are all jack of all trades and doing a bit of everything that can be a team of five people where there is one programmer and one game designer and one you know artist and mm -hmm. you've kind of got to make it work. And some are only developed by one person, if you take, you know, the likes of uh, Stardew or Undertale. Manor Lords, and, which was, Manor, Manor Lords. Lords was one person for a long time, yeah. Yeah, so there's, it's it's it becomes this kind of debate about, oh, thank you for the cheers. I can't do anything about the notification sounds. Uh, thanks. Here on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> People on Spotify going, what the fuck? Um, but I think it's, it's having that healthy balance between understanding that there is a certain, like when I say budget, I'm also talking about like production budget. If the money runs out in two months and you don't have time to add all the accessibility features that you'd like. Um, there's only so much you can do. I do think there is steps that a, that a lot of indie studios could do, um, and I think it's is that kind of fine balance. I mean, I would expect any sort of AAA game to have um, multiple localization options. I would expect the game to have been translated into you know fucking Spanish and Chinese and you know the kind of what. I, Unfortunately, when you start talking about you said the main languages, um, the most widely spoken languages, there's a kind of standard there. Um, but that's that's potentially out of reach for a lot of like smaller indie devs, especially you know, and this maybe kind of speaks to indie publishing to a degree, Joy. But like, if you're truly independent as a game dev, it means you're spending money on you know, marketing and you're spending mm -hmm. money on, mm -hmm. you know, you, you have to pay voice actors if you want to include that. That's why tons of indie games don't ship with any kind of voice acting because they can't afford it. Some find a halfway house between, you know, making noises for the character or maybe they just say a couple of words from what is written. Um, That's another option. But I think, like, that there's, there's, there's tiers of accessibility when we talk about accessibility in games um especially all the different genres of games 
some things can be made more accessible than than not. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's a that's that's kind of setting the scene, I suppose. Uh, we can there, maybe tackle. Also, there's also choices that are you. So my my main gripe with this is I'm going to talk about is strobe lighting that mm. is in everything right now. Um, and we're talking about accessibility. When we were playing Stardew together, someone messaged us to say. Could you tell I to turn off the lightning effect on his side of the game for those of us that are sensitive to flashing? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure, we'll turn it off. Stardew Valley has the option to turn off that strobe effect. Yeah. Very easy. A lot of games do not allow you to turn off lighting effects. They don't allow you to turn off blur motion. And they're big games. Yeah. It's not indies that are failing here. It's big games that are going, oh, well, uh, if you get seizures, don't play this game. Okay, why not just make it so that you can turn that off? Why yeah. why can't I turn it off? Like I, I've been playing Gotham Knights a lot and I, I really enjoyed it. But I have to play it in a fully lit up room on a day when I know I'm not going to be prone to a migraine because they have the Gotham atmosphere down perfectly, but it's very dark and you'll get the lightning flash. And they don't just use like a gentle light like they could do that if they it's wanted like to. It's like a they could proper flashbang effect, basically, isn't but it? It's, it's like being flashbanged. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the games I've been playing recently, they've had strobe effects that I can't turn off. And I'm like, what is this actually adding to the game? And I would actually argue from a development standpoint, if you can't convey a stormy night without having strobe lightning, you failed. Yeah. You don't it's... need it. Nah. Yeah, you absolutely don't. And like, I think... A lot of the time you can see like you can see lightning and stuff in the in the distance without having like the whole screen. I mean, I've uh, I've been playing Cyberpunk recently. Um, I even play that game. It just makes me instantly ill. Like the I remember when it first came out, there was absolutely no warning. There's a thing called brain dances in it, and you put on this like your character puts on a headset and there is this pulsing white light coming from it's and like there was there was a whole thing about how that like on launch that triggered someone's uh, epilepsy I think, and mm-hmm. I, I was a reviewer that that um, that was writing about it. I think they've had they've added in a warning now. I haven't checked the sentence to see about turning it off. Uh, I I didn't see it in the sentence when I took a cursory glance, but it's like it it's it's two pulsing white lights that reverberate like on different it's like the full-on effect and you're like how how did that get signed off without someone going that's a really strong effect to be showing people mm-hmm. on screen because it's not something i'm wowed by as a as someone who doesn't have like don't get me wrong there's sometimes when i'm streaming a game and the screen goes white or something pulses and i like i make a comment about it but i don't you know, I don't have epilepsy or any, anything like that, yeah. so it's it's not something I'm bothered by. But even then, it's not something I'm I'm never amazed by the strobe lighting effects. I never go, "Oh, this is really added to the game." Um, this is this has enhanced my experience. It's got nothing to do with that. Um, but yeah, I just I find it, yeah, I find it interesting. I don't yeah, and know the, as why. People are, pointing out, it's, people are pointing out in the chat. It is a legal obligation to have that warning at the start of games. Yeah. And they didn't do it. And then the person that posted about the having the seizure from the thing got harassed like, by oh, fans of yeah, the game got, that they, they hadn't harassed. played yet. <laughs> and it's like, I'm sorry. 
And it's like, oh, well, it's not a game for you then. Fuck you. Make your game accessible. Make it so that these things can be turned off. Yeah. Um, I'm very, I've been, we were, and the thing is, it's everywhere. Like, I can't, I've not watched any of the new Spider-Man ones because I have been told by people the strobe lighting will probably set me off into a migraine that Mm -hmm. will last for weeks. I am fortunate. I do not have any life-threatening seizures from my condition. It's just painful and debilitating for a short time. But it, it doesn't, why is everything strobing? All the TikTok filters have a strobe filter now. Yeah. And people don't warn for them because they don't consider it. I, I Myself and Mothman, we went to a wedding a couple of weeks ago and oh. the dance floor immediately had strobe lighting. Oh, fuck. And I was like, oh. Right. I'm, I'm going to be not well now because I'm in a room that has been darkened and there's strobe lighting. Why do we need it in everything? Why is it everywhere? And it's people say, well, people don't know. People don't understand. They do. We've had the research <laughs> epilepsy and seizures for decades. Sorry, Mothman and that- in chat is saying that was for their first song. What was the, what the fuck yeah. was the first dance that they needed strobe lighting for? It was just that as, soon as, as soon as the DJ replaced whatever the, the classical dance the bride and groom had, everything oh, just went dark and then it was strobing, pulsing lights Great, at a wedding. And I'm like, I mean, if anyone in there had, you know, like a grand mal seizure or something like that, it, they could have killed them. And yeah. there's just no consideration for anything like that. And it pisses me off so much when you do talk about it, you get people going, well, it's just not meant for you. Great. It's like... Okay. Oxygen's not meant for you, you ableist piece of shit. It's just, it's so annoying that it's just like a, it's a a secondary consideration. And then when you complain about it, you get people that are like, oh, get good. Or, oh, this isn't meant for you. You don't get, if you're having to have these things to make something look good, again, you are failing. Yeah. Um, if indie it's... games, if small indie games can turn off strobe lighting, can turn off blur motion, can do all these things, these big AAA games can do it as well. Yeah. I mean, I think the 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 really interesting thing about accessibility for like in games is that there's like so many. I, I'd say there's so many avenues. There's so many faucets of talking about accessibility. Like we're talking about. Um, like there we're talking about accessibility when it comes to like features embedded in the game I think my camera has just crashed oh no it's fine oh. Um, uh, I've frozen in place for a while there but like there's obviously we've talked about like strobe lighting as an effect and being able to toggle that on and off accessibility in games also comes in the form of actually having accessibility controllers um, you know <laughs> when we were raising money for uh, Glasgow Children's Hospital that was primarily for accessible controllers for them where they get you know there's there's a great there's there's great companies out there that work with game developers as in your kind of big you know xbox and sony and whatever to design controllers that allow people with perhaps some like motor disabilities or whatever to um to be able to play games so xbox has produced um like controllers for people where they only need the A and B button and the ability to move and everything else is mapped. Um, mm-hmm. You've got a, when I was at WASD back in March, I had the chance to play FIFA using my chin and using a chin controller that you could rest and then really cool. 
yeah, it was abs it was awesome. It was like an awesome bit of kit. So there's accessibility from a whole enabling people to play a game that they otherwise wouldn't with a a controller that's accessible with them. There's then debates around difficulty in games and you know they you know should you know obviously there's games like Dark Souls which have traditionally <laughs> you've not been able to to pause the game ever. Um there's no there's no easy mode. There's no you know, there's no difficulty setting. The game is just designed to be hard. And that attracts discourse and discussion from a different angle of accessibility. Mm -hmm. Um like should should the game be challenging as part of its thing? And of course this is this is completely different when we talk about accessibility when it comes to like a film or a TV show. Um and you know having you know subtitles or not having strobe effects and, and stuff like that. It because the medium's very interactive, you've got to you've got to factor that into that side of it. Um I'd say that, you know, I think there's a there's a sketch by like Darrow O'Brien during one of his stand-ups where he's saying oh, yeah. that like mm-hmm. gaming is the only is the only medium that like locks you <laughs> for like for like skill checks you basically. Um, because you know it's not like you ever get quizzed on a film halfway through, and that allows you to like continue to watch it. Um, but I think there's definitely ways that games need to start like shifting. I think there's obviously a particular group of people who are very souls-like who don't want people to like as a source of pride completing difficult souls-like games. And they don't want that to be like they've got it. I'm not sure if it's an ego thing, or I'm not sure if it's like a they want to be one of the the chosen. Uh, but it, it's it's strange how the there's there's a there's a bunch of people who basically would refuse for other people to play a single player game on a slightly easier mode. I find that gatekeepy as as has been mentioned in chat it's like for like for spiritfall which i've worked on we've got um accessibility settings now we do intend to move out the like the accessibility settings because we when we launched in early access we didn't have tons of accessibility but what we did allow is for people to change by percentage the amount of damage that enemies do to the player and the amount of damage that they uh, you're able to do, and you could also toggle the game speed as well. So, mm-hmm. like, you can reduce the game speed if you want to have a bit more time. The combat's very fast paced, um, but you could also reduce the amount of damage that you take from enemies, um, which was like those were the kind of core features. Um, we then ended up consulting with one of our uh, visually impaired players who amazingly prior to any kind of visual accessibility in game was able to get to like the first boss fairly consistently like literally just listening to the game sounds but then we added in more um it's like a um like a tone for you know the character's direction facing a tone for specific enemy direction um and it's made it a bit more it's it's one of those things that like the genre of game makes it really really difficult to design it with complete accessibility for people who are visually impaired in mind 
but you can still make quality of life changes that add things to to the community. I mean, like it's interesting that games that have a bigger budget weren't able to do that. Um, and it was, I think, the biggest complaint from the visually impaired community there was like Hades didn't do any of that. Mm-hmm. Now, Hades is a great game, don't get me wrong. Um, but I was quite surprised with like a, a company that's that large is um, like you would think they would be able to implement something that maybe doesn't make it absolutely flawless and they play it perfectly but allows you to like do a little bit. Um, There's small accommodations that can make a whole big difference. That's the thing. You can do really small things that wouldn't even register with someone else but it can actually be so impactful to how other people get to engage with media. Absolutely. It makes and a world of difference. The fact that you have these huge AAA companies that don't even consider it. Yeah. They, they And they'll actually buckle down and they'll side with the fans that are going, oh, well, if you need accessibility stuff, then you shouldn't really be playing the game. I hate that. It makes me actively go, well, I'm never going to buy anything from you again mm. because you're... You're showing your tr- your colors. You're showing that my money is not as good as someone else's. Um, therefore, I'm not going to give it to you. So it's just, but it does make a difference. Like the, the changes you were talking about for Spiritfall, they let me play. I'm not very good as you as we saw when that we played Bish Bash Bots the other day. <laughs> I'm not very good at fast paced games. You were fantastic. Like, <laughs> I was just hitting my special power button when necessary, but um, it was just the. Being able to slow things down really helps me because I have visual tracking problems. Like mm. because part of my migraines is I have a neurological, you know, disorder and my eyes can't follow things as well as they should. Um it's partly why I've got my pink if you're new to the channel, I've got pink glasses because I suffer you know, my migraines are so bad that blue light makes my optic nerve fry itself. But I also have my eye muscles are not in the correct position. So my the entire of my glasses are prisms to keep them in place. When I'm playing fast-paced games, I get very dizzy very, very easily because my eyes are trying to do too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I'm able to slow a game down, that means I can actually enjoy it and play it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to enjoy the wonderful game that you worked on. And that would have made me really sad because it's, you know, like, first of all, it's a good game, but also my friend made it. I want to participate in it. And then when it got slowed down and the changes happened, I was like, oh, I get to play this now and, and the fact that i was included made me feel welcome in that space with by that developer yeah um and like i feel obviously all games go through like development cycle they've all got their own challenges and stuff like that but you know that slowing slowing down the game speed wasn't you know, it wasn't like several months of work to implement. Mm-hmm. It, like, I know for obviously a larger scale game, as Mothman's mentioned in chat, you know, bigger games will have a lot more bureaucracy. They might have multiple teams. It's not like everyone's in the same room and able to chat, like, you know, pretty casually. Um, you know, you'll potentially have design decisions made months and months in, in advance. But I think... Like, and I would say that the industry is getting better at introducing accessibility into the game development cycle earlier. I just think that there's because of the because it's a creative industry that's designed around 
you know, borrowing ideas and being inspired by lots of other different games, there's there's not like a standardized way of combining accessibility into all games. Because like what what we add into Spiritfall as a 2D kind of platform fighter type game absolutely will not convert to like a 3D game in a no. meaningful way. Um and every studio obviously has their own way of tackling those problems as well. Um it's I think it'll only get better as like discussions kind of continue and like game development continues, but I think like one of the one of the issues that I'm finding is really difficult in the industry in general at the moment. And you'll have seen a whole bunch of like layoffs over the past like two months. There's been layoffs after layoffs. This year by far is like the games and the games industry's most successful year of all time, right? And we're getting like layoffs across the board. I don't think a lot of the bigger companies are taking responsibility from nurturing new talent. Like, mm-hmm. if you're wanting to enter the games industry at the moment, unless you're, un- unless you're like a nepo baby, or unless you are exactly what a AAA studio needs at that point, like you have to kind of get in the the indie level. And again, the problem with indies is that a lot of them don't have any sort of defined processes. So a lot of things are being made, you know, off the cuff. I've had experience of that. Um, I do feel like if you're a larger studio, um, like the way that, you know, Ubisoft's obviously done a really good job getting the accessibility stuff down. I do think that they have a responsibility to nurture and cultivate talent within the industry so that we're actually still able to make games um Mm -hmm. whereas at the moment you're seeing people getting laid off and all that's doing is injecting people into an already very saturated kind of job market and all the people who are coming from the triple a studios are getting to go into the the indie roles that are normally reserved for people who maybe don't have as much experience in the industry um so it's very it's very weird um and yeah as little chickpea says in chat like at the moment a lot of the games industry folk that i am linked into um on linkedin the worst website on the fucking planet you think (laughs) tumblr's bad that's hell site affectionate linkedin is hell site derogatory i fucking hate that website it is the worst place in the world it has so many of just like Think of the worst person from high school who was like, tried to be nice. Like the, the overly nice people from high school that were an absolute prick to you, but were nice enough to everyone else that they got away with it. They are all on LinkedIn and they are all the fucking worst. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> LinkedIn's a trigger for me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, like at the moment, every, every single games industry person is like, my. It's weird, I'm seeing a lot of my job is in immediate risk, so I am looking for another role. So it's like, they've been told that layoffs are coming, but they're not, like, they're, they're, they're immediately having to put out feelers to be like, shit, I don't have rent for next month if I get laid off. Um, and we're gonna circle back to capitalism being awful. We are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, like, 
I, I, I do find the conversation around accessibility in games really interesting because it's it's something that like I I would love to be able to make my own game at some point. I have plans for it, I've world-builded it, I've done, you know, rough sketches for it, um, and I would love to be able to do it. And I think as someone who wants to develop a game, I would want as many people to be able to play it as possible. Because I want people to talk about the the story side of it. Like I, I want people to experience it. And like a lot of the time when I play games now, I like I know when the gameplay isn't vibing with me, but like a lot of the time I play games for the story. It's why I love RPGs, it's why I play things like Mass Effect and Dragon Age and all that, because it's it's the characters, it's the interaction, it's the it's the story. <laughs> Do I think the combat in Dragon Age 2 was any good? Fuck no. It was horrible. But all of the character stuff was great and I wanted to experience the story. The character building was fantastic. And but all that was awful. <laughs> and I like I don't I don't think anyone should be locked out of an experience because like I'd, you 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 want to if you make a game you want to have people experience it. Um I, I think it's, it's like I've written a book but I only want certain people to read it. Yeah, right. It's <laughs> It's weird. It's like why would you why would you gatekeep your own thing? And I think, you know, obviously you've got to take I don't know if you've got to take the cultural aspect into this, because I'm like FromSoft, who make all the Dark Souls games and stuff like that, they're known for their punishing difficulty and their accessibility features aren't really there. Um like a lot of people who want to experience FromSoft games but maybe struggle um you know whether it's with the controls or whether it's with you know the, the game speed or anything like that mm -hmm. they they resort to mods in order to actually experience the game um and it's a shame that i mean if people are going to mod it in why would you not just include it as a setting would you and make it yeah it, it it doesn't need to be like it doesn't need to be easy is what i'm saying it can still it can still challenge someone, but you can make things like parry timings a bit more forgiving. You can like, you can really extend it. I mean, I think um, a good example of that was a uh, Jedi Survivor in Jedi Fallen Order, because mm -hmm. you could you could have a complete Souls like experience there, where you know, like you could you could set it so that the parry timings are fucking minimal, and you have to block it like the exact moment and all this sort of stuff. But there was also an option where. If you just wanted to play a fun Star Wars game, you could. And yeah, it into a hack and slash. It was exactly. Great. It wasn't restrictive at all. Um so yeah, it does seem uh I feel like it's got to we've got to move to become more accessible the, in that. The accessibility degree. has to be built into the game. As some people have been saying in the chat, it has to be built in from the conception point and mm -hmm. not just that you finished it and then go, oh shit, yeah, the disabled people. Yeah. Like, like that's. I, it can't actually, be an afterthought. So, so, well, actually, that's an, that's another interesting thing because I like I I quite like seeing games that people go to like Kickstarter and stuff for. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, on Kickstarter, you can have like a base goal and then you can have like advanced goals. Mm -hmm. Um, like stretch goals for like, oh, we okay, we're, we've we've got the game fully funded, and we'll add another level, or we'll add a new playable character after that. Um, 
I have seen some independent studios add accessibility features as stretch goals, and it always makes me squirm a little bit. It's like that should just be in the base game. You like don't don't think like add adding subtitles is like it's, <laughs> you know. I that's... understand it's an extra expense, but it should yeah. be the a base expense. It should not be an extra. Yeah, um, I would I would say fact like. Don't get me wrong, there will be some accessibility features that are maybe a bit more advanced to implement than other accessibility mm-hmm. features, but, like, just incorporate the base level of it into your base game, like, funding goal, uh, yep. would be my uh, thought on that. <laughs> Pay more to be disabled, ice cold take, yeah, Tundra, that's, that's basically what they're saying. Um, I mean, that's basically being disabled. That's, true. I mean, every, everything we have to, or we need is more expensive. Like, I lit- I took my rings off because my fingers were starting to swell up, but I literally have to pay extra to use my fingers mm. without damaging them. Like, it, there's, it, it's so annoying when it comes to forms of entertainment that you are also expected to pay extra because you have a disability. No, these things should be standard. Yeah. They should be, you know, especially if it's like a, a you know, a big company. Why are they? If these big companies have the budget, and then they go, "Oh, but it's, it costs so much money." Okay, pay your CEO less. Yeah, I mean, pay I your think work, pay your workers a living wage. Like, I just, yeah. I think, like the the frustration comes with just a lack of industry standardization, and I do think there's yeah. there is a lot of knowledge sharing that goes on in the games industry. There's like you know, game developer conference where they share like insights of how the team struggled through a challenging part of development but i think they're like it's the games industry is a weird one whereas like i think tv and film are quite clear on what some someone like a producer is like it's Mm -hmm. a pretty it's a pretty well-defined role a producer for a game studio and one studio and to the next studio can be completely different things completely different tasks mm-hmm. one person mm-hmm. might be spending all their time on excel one person might be like uh a, a kind of basically a pr type person is a is a jungle um and i think what the industry could maybe benefit a wee bit from is like having defined roles at the very least i think it's less of a problem on the coding side and the art side to an extent um, but for a lot of the production roles and marketing roles, like, I mean, that's, that's I suppose, another area of accessibility um, when it comes to the games industry where, like, I, can, I, I could apply for, like, a marketing community manager role and I might be a full-time video editor in one role. If I go to another one, they might want me to do press releases and manage a discord and manage all the social media and do all the content creation for it and suddenly your market and community manager role is actually four people's fucking jobs yeah. mm-hmm. um and yeah so it's it's one of those things the the industry could very much use some form of standardization but i think at the moment it's working to the benefit of some of the more wealthy in the industry um not to have those overly defined it's another yeah it's another form of exploitation because then they can hire you to do four people's jobs yeah exactly that's it yeah i mean like yeah i I could probably drop a couple of like job specs the job spec wouldn't mention the salary 
and it'll mention like here's something that we'll we see that you'll be doing um in your role and it'll be like requirements of like proficient with photoshop proficient with uh, premiere pro um knows their way around the uh, tiktok can film tiktoks can write tweets can do all our press releases can do influencer management and suddenly it's like okay and you're wanting to pay me $12 an hour for it fantastic yeah um, yeah exactly I mean, like if you were if you were being paid for four roles it wouldn't be a fucking issue but <laughs> you never know um but yeah it's uh i think like uh, to be honest i would actually also say and this is I feel like I'm very late in the in the chat. I know that we're we're gonna be getting into our final ten minutes soon. Um but the the way that people like people aren't able to enter the games industry particularly fast. And it leads to a lack of diversity in the industry, which also compounds the accessibility issues. Because you need yes. a diverse development team in order to even highlight some accessibility issues. Um you know, like some you just won't get that exposure. You won't have those conversations if you don't have more people in the industry being able to talk about them. So I like I always find it really interesting to listen to, um, you know, maybe more diverse voices in the industry because you've probably seen a uh, a white middle aged developer talk uh, at a, at a conference uh, more times than not. It's always good to like listen out because tends to add a bit more value to it and enrich the industry a bit i agree and it yeah it's again it's it comes back to the kind of the gatekeeping side of things as well where you have to look to see who doesn't want to make these changes mm. and also the people that want to keep up the levels of exploitation that are happening yeah. and it's it, 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 as, as all iSphere podcasts do end <laughs> it all just comes down to capitalism being a bastard really it's just um, yeah it, it's profit the sake of profit over respecting people yeah and that, i mean that like whether you're being employed or whether you're a, a gamer wanting to play a game if you're not being respected then it's not good enough like you need to be you know as an employee you should you have your job respected and honored and you shouldn't be doing the work of five six different people as a gamer you should be able to turn settings on and off without being told, oh, well, the game's not meant for people like you. And that's why it's on everyone who plays games to really champion for workers' rights within the games industry. Yeah. The games industry is, like, chronically under-unionised. Um, and a lot of the time when game devs and, you know, like, QA, I mean, you might have heard about the Bioware QA stuff um, have, yeah. with yeah. the Dragon Age 4, but that was basically ripped to shreds. Um, and you know it's it's an industry that that needs it um like you know i was i was talking about like you know one one studio hiring a marketing community manager who does four jobs uh, hi um that's a like that's that's part of it but it's also limited by the amount of funding in the industry um mm -hmm. you know like publishers maybe not picking up some games because they have to be choosy um, so it all kind of ends up compounding itself. Um, but yeah, I could talk for another hour about this, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> um, 
we've got three minutes left. We can't fit it in. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's it's probably sensible for us to wrap up the podcast section. We will be on for another ten minutes just for kind of casual chit chat and decompressing. So if you're in Twitch chat, don't go anywhere. If you're on a podcast platform, if you're listening on Spotify or whatever, uh, we're back. Uh, this was episode. 13? 13. Yeah, season season 2 still ongoing. We'll maybe take a judgement on that later on. Um, but we are back and we will be as, well, we'll try and be as consistent as possible. Our lives are still very busy, but we're, we're back for the meantime for our bi We're going to come up with a schedule. We're going to come up with a schedule yeah. and hopefully we can stick to it. So Yeah, that's the plan. Um, but no, this has uh, been good. So thanks very much for now and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.